0: So how do we know uh, that God is with us? The promise of God's presence with his people is one of our most precious possessions for us as the people of God. There would be no people of God unless God dwelt with us and communed uh, with us. God's presence is the only way for finite sinners to access the infinite holy God. And this is really what the entire message of the Bible is all about. The biblical story begins with God creating a place where his people can know his presence, a lush garden teeming with life, a place where people can perfectly do what they were made to do, and that is perfectly, joyfully worship in the presence of the living God. And we know that right away, the whole story changes quickly. Access to God's presence is threatened through the entrance of Satan and sin into the world. And so really the entire biblical story is about how God creates for his people a way back into his presence through his Son and through his Spirit. In the Old Testament, God promised to be with his people in a variety of types and shadows that symbolize and pointed to the work of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Exodus, we read that the children of Israel, as they left Egypt, God led them. He was with them in the desert. His presence was there in this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. God's presence went with his people through the ark and through the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Israel's greatest hope and our greatest hope is found in the words of the psalmist. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's only because of God's gracious promise uh, to David That he could proclaim in Psalm 23, I will fear no evil because you are with me. A promise that culminates in the New Testament when the word becomes flesh and God makes his home among men in the person of Jesus Christ. Near the very end of Luke's gospel, we read how Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem as he enters into the city during the final week of his earthly ministry, just days before his death. And we're told that he proclaims a certain coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem as an act of divine judgment because of the vast majority of the city, he says, did not know the time of their visitation. In other words, God's presence came near to his people in Jesus, and God made his dwelling among the people of Israel, but they rejected this. They spurned this, and they killed the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see that rejecting God's presence leads to terrifying judgment. It leads to spiritual death. But receiving God's presence through repentance, through faith, this is the pathway back to God's presence, the pathway back to eternal life. The very end of the Bible, uh, many of us know, describes this final chapter of redemptive history when God's people experienced God's final, eternally full visitation of his people. We see this climactic culmination of God restoring his presence forever uh, to the planet earth. We read in Revelation 21, this voice coming from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So between Jesus' first advent and his second advent, his second coming, again, how do we know, how do you know that God is really with you? How can you be assured that as you walk through the spiritual deserts and the suffering and the struggle and the pain and the trials, that you're not doing this alone, but that you're being led by the living God, that he is by your side in everything that you face? In our passage today, in First John, John gives us really three different answers to this question. How do we know that God is with us? John tells us that God dwells with us through his spirit. He dwells with us through our confession of Jesus. And he also dwells with us by abiding in his love. So what we're going to do today, our time in God's Word, is we're going to unpack each one of these three things uh, that we just mentioned. So let's turn our attention now and look to the passage that we just read a few minutes ago in the book of 1 John. So the first thing that John mentions about how we know how God abides with his people is that God is present with us because of the work of the Spirit. John says this right off the bat. Look at verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit. John here mentions something that you see emphasized throughout his writing, this act of abiding. He uses this word abide over and over again. Some 16 times, just in the book of First John, he'll mention this word abide. So this word abide here can be translated just as easily as live or remain. This word is used by John both in his gospel and in his epistles to talk about our living, vital relational connection to God. The bulk of the uses of this word abide in John's gospel comes from John 15. You'll remember where John uh, describes how Jesus teaches us that he is the vine and we are the branches and that we must abide uh, in the vine in order to bear fruit. You also notice in our passage that John says several times uh, that we must do mutual abiding. Right? God abides in us and we abide in God. He says this three times. Uh, And this is the language of mutual indwelling. It describes the great mystery of the gospel, how the infinite, perfect, living God unites himself to finite, sinful people. This union between God and his people, this is really the very heart of relational intimacy that all human relationships were really created to reflect. So deep friendships are about two very different people abiding in one another's lives. You can think about the glory of marriage, the glory of one flesh union between husband and wife. And again, it's about two very different people, man and woman, mutually making a home in each other's lives, in each other's bodies and in their hearts. We see mutual abiding show up in other places, in the scriptures in passages like John 17 that we read earlier in our service where Jesus prays that we as God's church would experience the unity the mutual abiding in one another that flows from our abiding in the eternal love that's shared between the Father and the Son. John prays for all those who will later believe through the disciples' proclamation. He prays for us, essentially, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The Bible's teaching here on mutual indwelling, God's dwelling with his people and his people dwelling in him tells us something very important about the nature of all human beings everywhere. We were all created to deeply know others and to also be known. And that's true for everyone, regardless of how social you are, regardless of your personality, personality type. You were made to be someone who deeply knows others and is known by others. God made us this way for a reason, a really good one, to reflect the glory of his triune nature. That he has always been and will always be one God who exists from all eternity as three persons in deep relationship with one another. So this means that every human being will fulfill his or her destiny by growing and cultivating our relationships with God and with each other. If mutual abiding is God's design for us, then what we need to see is that all the things that threaten our relationships with God and with other people, all these things are really the front lines in our battle with Satan and the world of the flesh. And we must grow to see all the many things that we do in our relationships with God and others that threaten God's good design. The ways we're committed to dishonesty. The ways we're committed to denial, rejecting vulnerability, responsibility, the ways we pursue isolation and self-protection. These are all ways that we're really trying to unravel God's good design of knowing others and being known in a deep, profound way. And so John tells us that the spirit is the person that enables us to know God and also be known by him. In verse 13, we see something that we see in several other places in the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit is the link. He is the vital connection between God and his people. In the New Testament, the Spirit assures us that the love we receive from God is a reflection of this loving dynamic that has existed from all eternity between God the Father and God the Son. The Spirit draws us into the eternal, overflowing fountain of love that has always existed between the Father and the Son. So, for example, it's at Jesus' baptism that we remember that the Holy Spirit shows up, right? And you remember what happens when the Spirit is there? Well, we see the Son abiding in the Father and the Father abiding in the Son through this voice that the Father speaks over His Son saying, This is my beloved Son, and with Him I am pleased. And so in a very similar way, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit assures us of God abiding in us, that we belong to God that you are loved by him. This is what Paul gets at in Romans when he says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul also later says we have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul will also later go on to say in Romans that the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So people of God, listen, just as God proclaimed to Jesus in his baptism the truth about he truly is, who he truly is, that he is God's beloved son, so the Spirit proclaims to us who we truly are, that we are God's beloved adopted children. Because of the work of the Spirit, we cry out to God. We address him as Abba, Father, just like Jesus did during his earthly ministry when he addressed God is his father, and cried out to him, addressing him as Abba. People of God, how do you know again that God is with you no matter what? Through thick and thin, through everything. No matter how lonely at times you feel. No matter how intense the suffering or the depression or the anxiety that you feel. We know by trusting God's spirit speaking to us through his word. And there will be many competing voices that will seek to lead you astray from the truth that God will forever be with you, always. Your flesh will tell you otherwise. Your flesh will tell you are utterly alone, that God doesn't care, that no one cares, that your pain just doesn't matter to God. People of God don't listen. Listen again to uh, the reassurance that we hear through the Holy Spirit that you are a son, you are a daughter of the living God forever. Put your trust again in the gospel message that the Father is sending His Son to be the Savior of the world, to die and rise again for you. This is our ultimate assurance that God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The work and presence of His Spirit is your greatest assurance. That he's begun a good work in you and he will see the good work of your salvation through all the way to the end until you stand before Jesus face to face someday. Okay, so let's move on in our passage. John tells us that we know God's presence is with us not only through the work of the Spirit, but we also know through our confession of Jesus. Listen to what he says. Look at verses 14 and 15. John says, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, that may sound simple enough. But the Bible packs a lot into this little phrase, Son of God, when it attaches it to Jesus. This title for Jesus in the first century would have meant that Jesus was God's promised royal son of David, the one who would fulfill all of God's promises that he'd been making to Israel for so long. He would be the one who would usher in God's kingdom and establish God's eternal reign and rule in this definitive climactic way. And confessing the truth about Jesus, that he's the savior of God's world, that he's the true son of God, again, according to the Bible, this is no bare, empty piece of theology, according to the scriptures. John tells us that God abides in those who confess Jesus and they abide in God in a special way. So it means that God has promised to abide with us, to be with us as people, by doing something as simple as confessing the truth about who Jesus truly is. One of the ways that we can understand this is through the corporate dimension of the church's confession of faith. When we gather here as God's people to worship him, we come together in order to confess not only our sins, which is important, but we also come to confess and proclaim to the world the truth, the truth about who Jesus truly is. And the Bible says that when we do this, God's presence is here among us in this special way, a way that's essential for every Christian. So we must see that a crucial way that we abide with God each and every week or a crucial way that God abides with us is by gathering here to confess together our faith in God as one body. Okay, so the Spirit abides through us, Uh, God abides with us through His Spirit and through our confession about Jesus. What else does John say about how God abides with us? Well, the next thing he says that God abides with us as people through love. He abides with us through love. I think it's very interesting, don't you, that John pivots to talking about God abiding with his people through their love, right after mentioning that God abides with his people through this confession of their faith. We don't often pair confessing the truth about God with love. Various churches, even entire theological traditions have pitted God's truth and God's love against each other. So, for example, a lot of maybe mainline denominations that want to emphasize the need for love, the need for loving people, often they may downplay the importance of confessing other biblical truths that are really important. We're often given this false choice all around us between orthodoxy, right, believing, and orthopraxy, right, living. Some churches maybe are known for their slogans, right, like deeds, not creeds, that explicitly are going to pit actions of love against confessing the truth about God. But what we need to see is when we look to the scriptures themselves, what we see is that they never make us choose between one or the other. Instead, they always join these two things together, God's truth and God's love. This is a good word for us because we as Reformed people, often we can easily fall into the trap of thinking That if we just get all of our theology right, that's really the bulk of what the Christian life is about. And sadly enough, I've seen, maybe many of you have seen, how reformed people can often be prone to emphasizing confessing theological truth and at the same time be people that lack love in such an overwhelming way. And the Bible's way of thinking, seeking to be correct theologically, seeking to confess the truths of the Bible in a way that's faithful, this is an empty thing. This is a hollow thing unless it shapes us into people who love God and love others well. John tells us that God abides with his people through their confession about God as well as through their love. So we should be people who are passionate about doing both of these things. We must see and believe that God makes his presence known. He abides with us in both of these ways. So John tells us that abiding in love is the same as abiding in God. He says in verse 16, so we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. When John writes that God is love, he's telling us something crucial again about the nature of love itself. That all true love begins not with human beings, but it begins with God. And also, what I want us to see is that the doctrine of the Trinity here is really the key to helping us understand what John means. What does he mean when he said God is love? Well, he means that before God ever created the world, before he ever created people who would ever love anyone else, love was already there from all eternity. He existed in an eternal fellowship of love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Bible says that God is love. It's saying that love is an essential attribute of God. That love begins, again, outside of human beings, and it must be revealed to human beings through God. The Father, Son, and the Spirit don't have to be commanded to love. They have always loved from eternity past, and they will love into eternity future. So without love, God would cease to be God. Again, since the very nature of the Father is to love the Son, the nature of the Son is to love and return and serve His Father, and the nature of the Spirit is to give and receive the love that's exchanged between the Father and the Son. So abiding in love means that we are participating in this eternal overflow of triune love. We seek to be people who are defined more by what we give than what we demand or what we take. Abiding in love means that we seek to incarnate through our words, through our deeds, the infinite train love in a world that is often dark and loveless in so many ways. And abiding in love also for us, it will be one of the many things that makes us a very peculiar people, a very strange people, again, in a world that's so often broken and filled with hate the gracious outpouring of love from God to his people, and then from God's people out into the world stands in stark contrast to how Satan's kingdom of darkness operates. C.S. Lewis, he puts this so powerfully in this book he wrote called The Screwtape Letters. Some of you have read this book. So the premise of the book is that it's uh, an imaginary set of conversations between a senior demon to a younger demon in training. Listen at one point what the senior demon writes. He says this. One must face the truth that all the talk about his, that's God's love for men, is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. It's a profound contrast, isn't it? That evil is like this bottomless, hungry pit that can never be filled. It just wants more and more and more. But God is like this eternal fountain that is constantly overflowing. So abiding in love means that we seek to give love out of this overflow of love that we've already received, that daily, by every second you receive, because we're united to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the God of love. Okay, so John tells us that God abides with us through our abiding in God's love. In verses 17 through 21, or 17 through 19, what we see is that abiding in God's love, it's got a goal in mind. It's got a destination, a particular place uh, that God wants to lead us towards on our way to our eternal destination. So, what is the goal of love, according to John? He answers this in a couple of different ways. He first mentions our confidence before God that drives away fear. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is also are we in the world. John goes on to say, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we can see that for John, one of the goals for God's love at work in his people is this assurance and confidence that we have before God that will drive out fear. Now, Obviously, the Bible has lots to say about all kinds of fear. And there's a certain kind of fear uh, before God that the Bible repeatedly tells us is actually a very good thing, a very essential part of our faith. The book of Proverbs tells us that all true knowledge of everything, it's rooted in the fear of the Lord. The book of Psalms were commanded by God to fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him, have no lack. So obviously that is a very different kind of fear than the fear that John here is talking about. This isn't a fear that propels people towards God in love and obedience, but a fear that leads us to shrink away from God, to move away from God. This fear eats away at our assurance of God's love for us. It seeks to make us into people who just want to avoid the pain of punishment. This fear seeks to make us into people who avoid the pain of vulnerable exposure at any cost, fear that leaves us being isolated, cut off. Uh, put us, it puts us into a sense of self-exile before God and other people. Can you think about the very beginning of the Bible and you can see right away in the aftermath that of Adam and Eve's first sin, this is the kind of fear that drives them to hide, to run away from God when God comes near, to begin to blame each other when God confronts them with their sin. So what we see in our passage is that God-like love makes the beloved confident before the lover. There's no insecurity in this relationship. There's no shadow of doubt as to the security of the bond of love that they share. So for John, mature love, love that is being perfected is love that drives fear out of our hearts as God's people. Perfected love is love that has reached its goal, experiencing the assurance of God's love, a love that will be publicly, eternally displayed for us when Jesus comes again. And we also need to see the receiving, this fear-killing kind of love in the gospel. This is what makes us as God's people into courageous, bold people, as people who belong to the living God. Have you ever noticed how so much of our relationships with people is rooted in fear. Godly wise fear is about rightly perceiving a threat and moving away from it or eliminating it. But we often can become ruled by fleshly fear, even when there really is no threat, even when we are relatively safe, when we are relatively secure. And our fears can make the things that are threats appear so much more dangerous and scary than they actually are. A great verse in Proverbs that I love, I think about often is, This verse, it says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. So the idea here is that fleshly fear that characterizes those who don't know God is about running away, even when there is no threat. But we all know, as God's people, even as as us being the righteous, we're still very susceptible to this kind of fear. We all devise so many strategies to manage all the fear that you experience around people. We don't share with people what you actually think, what you actually feel, even with people who love you and care about you. Why? Because you're afraid of being rejected in some way or ridiculed or scorned. All of us in so many ways, we can be subtly dishonest with people why? Because you're so afraid of them becoming angry. You're so afraid of the conflict that can happen with them. We work so hard, don't we, to make sure that people like us. Why? Because we're terrified. We're terrified of losing people's approval. What often see with people is that relating to others out of fear, it actually begins to create the very things that we are afraid of. So that our fears really become a self fulfilling kind of prophecy. So what i want us to see is that how we interact with people this is always an overflow of our relationship with god the presence of fear in our relationships with people is a sign that we lack the assurance of god's love for us that we don't understand we don't believe that you really are eternally secure through the god of love you are secure in him And and when we doubt this, when we don't believe this, when we move away from this, we become insecure, relationally fragile people everywhere in life. And so all of our fears of people, again, are signs that our trust in God's love for us needs to be cultivated. We need to grow this. That our faith in God's love for us has not been perfected, as John says. People of God, if you find yourself being controlled by the fear of people, then God would have you look away actually from people, which I know sounds counterintuitive. He would have you look away from yourself, and he would have you look again to the perfect love of God that's given to you in the gospel. In this love, you are forever safe. You are forever secure. No matter how deep the pain goes that we experience from other people, no matter how deeply you fear the things people can do to you. All right, so after John mentions that one of the goals of love is casting out fear, he goes on to mention one more that we're going to quickly talk about. Another aim, another goal of of abiding in God's love is to propel us towards people. John says in verse 19, we love because he first loved, loved us. So this other goal that John mentions is that we actually become more loving people. People cannot receive the love of God and remain the same according to the Bible. We see this on a smaller scale even in our human relationships, how receiving love from people actually changes you into someone who's empowered to love. There have been all kinds of numerous psychological studies that demonstrate all the ways that people are harmed, people are deformed mentally and emotionally when they grow up in a family where there's no secure loving connection between parents and the and, uh, kids. Those of us who are married can testify all the ways that being loved by your spouse has actually changed you into a different person. So you can look at the beginning of when you were married and you look years down the road and see you're a different person because of this love that you've received. And so if all of this is true, even with finite, imperfect love that you receive from fallen human beings, how much more true is this when we are the recipients of God's perfect, eternal, divine love that comes to us. So receiving and resting in God's love given to us in the gospel, it makes us into people who overflow with the eternal love of our triune God. The nature of God, again, like we said earlier, includes this eternal overflow between the Father and the Son given and received through the Holy Spirit. And everything John is saying in our passage, especially at verse 19, is undergirded by what we believe about the Trinity. Uh, listen to this guy named Michael Reeves. He wrote this in this fantastic little book. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. Listen to what he says. He says, the shape of the father-son relationship begins a gracious cascade, like a waterfall of love. As the father is the lover and the head of the son, so the son goes out to be the lover and the head of the church. As the Father is the lover and the Son the beloved, so Christ becomes the lover and the church the beloved. What I want us to see here is that this gracious cascade that Michael Reeves talks about in the Trinity flows down to God's people from God. And then he wants us to have it flow out into the world, into the lives of people you see each and every day. Because we as God's people in the gospel become the beloved who are loved by the perfect lover, the Lord Jesus Christ. We now are empowered to become lovers who seek to make other fallen sinners into our beloved. People of God, as we close our time today in God's word, I want you to see that God's trying love for you is bigger than any love you could ever possess. It's better than any love you could ever receive from other human beings. It's infinitely greater even than the love you experience for your own children. And God has proven his love to you by sending his son to this world. And through the continual work of his spirit that is happening in your life right now in the present. And as Jesus exhorted his disciples, I want to close today by exhorting you in the same words that he uses. Abide in his love. Look with your eyes of faith to the truth about the eternal fountain of love that is found only in God. A love that never changes, it never wears out, and never loses its power. Interpret all of your life through the lens of our loving God. And pursue and practice this overflowing, brimming over gracious love in the lives of the people around us. Let us pray.